for many people, you and I and how we live our lives might be the only gospel they'll ever hear and the only Bible they'll ever read. And so God has called us to represent Him in this world. And we are to be the living proof that indeed that we serve a risen Savior, a living Lord. Uh, there was two songs this morning that I just I really, really greatly enjoyed. In the early service, so we sang together, Living Hope. And I just, I, I just love that song. I love the line that, that has, uh, the grave has no hold on me. Is that, did I say that right? Yeah, it's, just, it's like we've been set free in Christ. And then I love the choir singing uh, the Redeemer song and, and just the lyrics of it. I know my Redeemer lives. All creation testify. This life in me, within me cries. I know my, my Redeemer lives. And just to lift that up. But it's all about living. We have a living Lord, a living hope. And we are the living, breathing examples in this world. And I, I say that again to, to overlap with what we're going to be studying in tonight is we are looking at these instances that we see where God called together witnesses at critical key moments to be, in their day, the living witnesses, and because their story is recorded in Scripture, to continue to be, in essence, the living witnesses. And I take you back to a verse that, that is found in Deuteronomy. We've started every one of our sessions with this. But uh, this, is the, this is the standard of evidence that God set in the, under the law for in, in a sort of a criminal trial. He simply says this, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity. If all you got is one witness, that is not enough to convict or to prove or to verify something is true. He set this standard. He said, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And I've, again, I've, 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 we've looked at several of these, but it's just interesting how God maintains that standard in all these key things. Remember we talked about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who came to the burial scene. We talked about the guards who were there at the, at the, at the, as the resurrection scene. Uh, we've looked at several of these that, that, it just, that it's, on, it's in play. Now tonight and actually next week, because there's eight of these, and we're only going to look at four tonight, we're going to look at all of the, briefly, all of the resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus. All the places in Scripture where Jesus was seen by living witnesses to be living proof. And uh, so these are indeed witnesses to the resurrection. And uh, we're going to find that, that these are going to just verify, you and I know that we have a living Lord, but this the level of authenticity and authentication He has is available to us and it's just a, also a good reminder to us that we are to be the verification, the authenticity to our message that we proclaim. Now, in all eight of these, I just need to preface, to get, preface with this to get you ready. In all of these scenes, God sets it and, and arranges it so that Jesus shows up. Have you ever think about, why did Jesus show up to the women, first of all? Why is it that, that he, he waits till later that evening to show himself to the group of disciples why does he kind of come secretly to the two that are on the road to Eumaeus you know there are all these different kind of surprising jarring different situations I want to suggest to you that one of the things and I don't I don't promise you that I certainly don't believe I figured out everything about this but one of the things I, I think he's doing he's let it, he's setting these resurrection appearances in different emotional scenes because the multiplicity of these scenes 
will bring authenticity to the fact that Jesus is alive. Now, let me show you what this means. Imagine, and some of you have had this experience, if you've been a parent of little children, uh, you're, you're, you're comfortably in your bed at night. And there's not a sound, you know, not, not a creature stirring, you know, everything's just safe. And all of a sudden you hear this wail down the hallway and you hear these little, these little, these little feet come running in your room and they dive into your bed and they're all frightened, whatever. And they say to you, mom, dad, there's a monster under my bed. That may have happened to you or something similar, but let's, we're just imagining, all right? You are first of all going to conclude that there is no monster under anybody's bed, all right? You just, you just certainly rule that out, Okay. But you also are compassionate to the child. You don't scold them. You don't, you know, punish them. Like, why'd you, why, at least I don't think you should, uh, because they've wake, awakened you, because they've been frightened. In their emotional state, maybe it was a bad dream. Maybe it was, you know, they ate too much pizza after supper or something, or, you know, for supper. But that maybe it was, we know that there's some emotional upset that caused them to conclude that there's something scary. And you being the good parent that you would be, what would you go and do? I'm just asking. What? You go and you look under the bed, shine the flashlight. There's nothing scary under there. Or so, as you maybe have heard, you know, there's no under the bed. He's moved to the closet. You better check that too, you know. So, so you, you, know, you, you just put their mind at ease because the emotion of the moment caused them to see or believe that there's something there that wasn't there. Okay, got that whole picture? There's some of these scenes that if that's all we had, Think about the women, and we'll look at them in just a moment. The women that came on that early Sunday morning, they, they're bringing spices. They're going to finish, the, they believe, the process of what they believe was an in, uh, an, an in, an, uh, a not completed process of preparing the body for burial. I think they were probably unaware of everything that Joseph and, and Nicodemus had done, but regardless, uh, they're, they're coming, and, and they're expecting, and their biggest concern is who's going to roll the stone away from the tomb. How are we going to get entrance into this? We, can't, we don't have the physical ability to do it. And when they get there, the stone is rolled away. Jesus shows up. And you think about it. If you hear these women's story, we've seen the Lord. The Lord is alive. He's risen. You might be tempted to say, you know, a bunch of emotional women in all of their sorrow and all of their tears and all of their things, they just saw something, you know, somebody that they thought was Jesus, and now, now, the, now the women have gone crazy. You know, that's, that, you could dismiss these events because of the emotional setting. But here's what God does in these eight settings. Every one of them is a different type of setting and different type of people. So he's saying to us, in essence, the likelihood of Jesus appearing in all these different settings, all these emotional scenarios to all these different people in all these different times, if you put them all together, this cannot be everybody going crazy. This cannot be hallucination. This cannot be mass hysteria. This cannot be a lie. This cannot be a hoax. Because all of these different settings put together show us that Jesus indeed, as it says in Scripture, showed himself alive by many infallible, infallible, provable, infallible proofs. So that's what we're going to look at. Now, in each one of these emotional settings, it becomes an opportunity for these people to be living proof. And I just want to suggest to you, this is where it interacts with us. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter if it's a scary moment, if it's a boring moment, if it's a joyous moment, it's just something that's really a sad moment. Whatever, whatever's going on emotionally in the moments of your life, that, that moment is a unique opportunity for you and for me to be living proof 
that we serve a risen Lord, okay? Now, that was a lot of getting you ready, okay? Understand that. I think it'll come clear as we, we go through this. So I want you to go, first of all, to, uh, to Matthew 28. And we're first of all going to take a look. The first setting here is of Mary and the other Mary and Salome and Joanne and one other woman. We, we're not quite sure how many there were, but we have to look at three quick passages of Scripture. Matthew 28 is going to be our first stop to get together just who all was there and just a little snippet of the scene, okay? But uh, 28.1 is where we're going to begin. And the emotional setting, the emotional setting is one of sorrow. They're coming in their sorrow. They're coming in their grief. They're coming to mourn. Probably they expected that while they were um, doing what they could do to the body of Jesus, there was going to be crying and wailing and, and uh, lamenting his death and his loss. And you know, in their culture, in our culture, we go to a funeral setting and everything's kind of quiet. And everything's, you know, sort of hushed. Now, sometimes someone will be emotional. We understand that. But in their day, you, when, you, when you were mourning somebody, you were loud and wailing and crying. And it was a very emotional scene in their culture. So that's what they were expecting. So in, that, so in that background of perceived sorrow, here's what happened, 28.1. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene the other, and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Now, you, put, you have to put all these stories together to get the whole list, but just get some of the flavor, get some of the emotion. They're coming in their, their sorrow, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and uh, that's the whole story of the guards, and we talked about that last time we were together. He's not here, he's risen, and so forth. Uh, but anyway, uh, so th- the guards are gone, but the answer, but verse 5, but the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know what you, that you seek, Jesus who was crucified. Yeah, that's so far so good. And then the bomb is about to drop. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. You ever notice how it seems like angels just want to get the, they want to deliver the whole load of a message. Whatever they have sent to give, got that done. Now I'm out of here. You know, sort of like here's the whole, the whole thing. So they went quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring the disciples' word. So you see the emotion of it. They come in sorrow. They leave with fear and great joy all mixed together. You ever notice how sometimes our emotions can be all mixed together? We can be scared and be joyful. We can be sorrowful, but also have some level of, of, of uh, comfort even in all that uh, things that are going on. So I want you to look further. Verse 9, we have this other little snippet. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them. So it's just been an angel announcing, saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my, my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, if you'll go over to the last chapter, Mark, next chapter, next book in the Bible, we're going to see Mark's account. And each one of these gospel writers, they don't contradict each other. They're just both all giving us little different additional bits of information. But it tells us a little bit why they were coming and gives some names here. 16.1. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. 
And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? And when they looked up, they saw the tomb, excuse me, the stone had all been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he was going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said. So they went out quickly, fled from the tomb, and they trembled, for they trembled and were amazed. There's that, that emotional setting. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And then you have the story of Mary Magdalene sees the risen Lord in 9, 10, and 11. And I want to go one other place, and that's Luke's account in chapter 24, Luke 24. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. That, that would, two things already perplexed them. Stone's gone, tomb's empty, no body. It happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise rise again. Verse 8, And they remembered his words, and they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they did not believe them. And then you have the story of Peter, and John's also part of the mix we know, goes and looks in the tomb. So say all that to say this. In their sorrow, Jesus meets them, shows himself, the tomb is empty, he speaks to them. Mary Magdalene has her own little sort of encounter with, with, with the Lord Jesus. Exactly how those sequence all fits, that's not our point to sort of rectify, we just know it all does fit. But in the midst of their sorrow... They announce that Jesus and verify that Jesus is the living risen Lord. Now, you notice in the text here, it says, verse 11, And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. Here's these great men of faith, okay? Here's the, people, here's the men that walk with Jesus. Here's the men that heard Jesus say what the, what the angel just quoted in a, a couple verses earlier. Here's the men who saw him walk on water, raise Lazarus from the dead, etc., And uh, they come to him and uh, the women have gone crazy. Who can believe this? To them, it's like the monster under the bed. That's that's how they just dismiss it. And they just thought to themselves that that they're idle tales and they did not believe them. Now, Peter and, uh, and John, we know from other texts, goes and they see the tomb empty. They see the clothes lying there. But they don't see Jesus until later that evening. In the midst of their sorrow... They are verifying that Jesus indeed is alive. There's a verse found in John 16, 22 that I want to call your attention to. And I want you just to, I want to drop a few words into your mind. John 16, 22, And I think you might have that on the screen, I hope. Uh, but it says, this is Jesus speaking. Therefore, you now have sorrow. This is because he's told them that he is going away. But I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your, and your joy no one will take from you. So the question is, are you and I living like we're about to see Jesus someday? 
in the midst of a sorrowful world, in the midst of our own personal sorrow, I want to suggest to you that is a unique, special, and very vivid opportunity for us to show that Jesus indeed is the living Lord. That we sorrow, as Paul writes, we do sorrow. We have sorrows. Our hearts are struck. We do grieve, not, not, not taking any of that away. But we don't grieve. We don't sorrow like those who have no hope. There is underneath our sorrow this, this hope of eternal life, this hope of God being in control, this hope of it all going to be worked out and settled and put in a place of safety and security. I want to just drop three words into your thinking that I think that if we can just understand that, yes, we have sorrow now, but we're to verify that we're different because it is different, because everything is different since Jesus indeed is alive. Uh, how about the word anticipation? May God cause us and help us to live with anticipation that indeed we are going to see the Lord. Someday we will be with Him. Now, add to that the word joy. We already saw that word in our previous text, joy. And I would just add one more, the word confidence. I think those should be the, out, the outworking of this reality. That yes, we have sorrow. Yes, we have those moments of, of great tragedy and weight and we feel with them and God built us to grieve and he, he, it's okay to cry. Remember, Jesus cried at the tomb of Lazarus. And Jesus knew that he was about ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, okay? So if, if Jesus could weep and cry in that setting, it's okay for us to have sorrow. But the way we sorrow and the hope we have in the midst of sorrow, how can we have that kind of hope? How can we have that kind of resilience? Because we serve a risen living Lord. Now, let's go a little bit further, and you're right here open in front of us. Look at verse 13. Here's the next one. And here is Cleopas and a companion, who I think, he, I believe, is probably uh, Mrs. Cleopas. I think this is probably a husband and wife, although unnamed, on the road to Emmaus. Now, behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. I just call this one, this is the in secret emotion. This is the, this is this. And this one baffles me. It was just the work of God that he was hidden from their eyes. Maybe it was just they never expected to see Jesus. So the guy they see it couldn't be Jesus. So it, it clouds their minds and their thinking. Or maybe they were supernaturally. It says their eyes were restrained. We don't know if that's supernatural or natural. We don't know. But they didn't know it. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you only strange in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And then they go and they tell the whole story. The whole story how he was crucified. And go down to verse 24. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. Okay? And they talked about the women who visited and so forth. And they saw a vision of angels and so forth. But we haven't verified that. And then Jesus begins, and wouldn't you love to have had the, the tape recorder going here? And beginning at Moses 27, and all the prophets, he expounded them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't you love to have that recorded? But by the way, that tells us, if you want to know about Moses and the prophets and all the scriptures of the Old Testament, you want to know what they're all about? This gives us the clue. 
Because Jesus, the story of Jesus is woven into all of them. And then they finally, they, they, they're going to spend the night in this place. And they come in, verse 30, now it came to pass as he sat at table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and, he, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And then they turn around, make a U-turn, hurry back to, to, uh, to Jerusalem. And they found, this is now 33, and f- the end of the verse, and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and, is, and, and has appeared to Simon. And they told him about these things that had happened on the road and how it had been known to them in the ba- breaking of, of bread. So the, the, out of their, their, their secret encounter, and I just rem- I'm just reminded, I want to remind you of this. A lot of what God's doing in this world, you and I, we might have hints of it. We might see flashes of, of insight. We might catch some, some, some little evidences that he's at work. But most of what he's doing is behind the scenes. There's a verse that's found in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18. Let me just read it to you. Paul writing, Well, we do not look to the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. <laughs> and if you, didn't, if you weren't a person of faith, that would make no sense at all. Don't look at things you can see. Look at things you can't see. How can you look at something you can't see? You can with eyes of faith. But things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. If your eyes can see it, it's temporary. If you have looked upon it, it's temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. How can we be the living witnesses? You and I need to just believe and respond in believing that there's a great unseen reality that, that you can't point people with their eyes to look at, but we, need, we are people of peace that, people that we believe in it and act upon it. That we, we would give testimony of things like this. That what happened? That was an answer to prayer. By the way, some people are going to say, you've lost it at that point. You might say, you know what? That was a providential working of God. That, was a, that, that, was, that had to be a miracle that God did that. I would just want to encourage you uh, to, to just live and trust in that unseen work and to call it out for a skeptical closed down world that believes in everything else and many times believes in nothing and trusts nothing that's a powerful witness that we give voice to that which is unseen and then there's this this next one is what i'm going to call the third of the four we're going to look at is what i'm calling the in surprise visit in their surprise in their shock And look at verse 36. It's right here in front of us. It's also recorded for us over in John. But since we're here, we'll read it here. Now, as as they said these things, okay, so the the 11, Judas has committed suicide. The 11 are gathered, and it indicates that there's a larger number here. And again, this is Jesus showing himself to more than one person, the mouth of two or three witnesses, and in the setting of their sorrow, in the secret setting, and here in the surprise setting, all of it, it's saying to us these are verifiable because of the variety and the amount of people involved. Okay, this is part of those infallible witnesses. Now, as they said these things, they're, they're just telling the story. Right in the middle of it, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace be to, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. <laughs> oh, great people of faith. And it's easy to chuckle at them. But what great people of faith we are many times, right? And when, we, when our faith falters and fails. And he said to them, why are you troubled? 
And why did, why do doubts arise in your heart, in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that I am, that is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as, as you see I have. By the way, I already made a mistake. It was only the ten disciples. One of them's missing. We'll see that in just a moment. So it's the, it's the ten, not, I said eleven a moment ago. Verse 40. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe for joy, that phrase just has always baffled me. They did not believe for joy. The only thing I can just say is they were, their emotions were just so riled up by this shock and this surprise of Jesus. He's just, and by the way, it didn't say he knocks at the door. It didn't say he, he enters in. It's just suddenly, there he is. Peace to you. So I just, I just think they're, they're not able to process it just yet and for joy and marveled. And he said to them, I just love this. Have you any food here? I don't, I don't think they saw that one coming. You know, here's the risen Lord. Do you have, any, do you have anything to eat? Now, part of it is, in their, in their Jewish superstitious um, background of their culture, if it were a ghost or a spirit, uh, they didn't have bodies. So you wouldn't expect them to eat anything. So part of that is to, to kind of take that one off the table. I do have a body. I am real. I am, I, you can touch me. You can see me. You can see this, the nail prints and, and, and this, this eating food. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish with some, and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in the presence. So part of it was verification. Also the fact that, that he says, see, see my hands and my feet. Who else would have the scars of crucifixion in their body and not be dead? Who else would have the marks of those wounds and be living proof that he's alive? I mean, this is, is totally unique. And it's, it's part of the grace of God. Do you understand if God would have wanted to? When Jesus, I mean, he was healed of everything else and restored from everything else. And these indeed are healed, but those scars are still visible in his body as a testimony to people like us. Someday, someday you and I are going to look upon, we're going to look upon those nail-scarred hands and those, the prints in the nail and, the, and in his side to verify that these things are true. Um, I just want to suggest to you that you and I, here's how we intersect with the living proof. In those moments of shock and surprise in our life, I want you to think this way, and I want to think this way. Just remind yourself, it might be shocking, it might be un, unexpected, it might be the furthest thing you would ever imagine. When something shocking happens, just remind yourself, somehow, some way, in, in God's economy, it is all part of the plan. It's all part of the plan, somehow, some way. And in their shock, what's going on? And they're, they're marveling and they're not believing because of their joy. And, and you got any fish and the nail prints. And, I mean, how, can you imagine trying to process all this? But in their surprise and in their shock, this was all part of God's plan to assure us and to assure anybody that has an open mind to the documentary evidence that we serve a risen Lord. So here's how we can be a witness. Next time that shocking thing happens or that surprise, be it good, bad, or just indifferent, we just need to remind ourselves and remind anyone else who would care to hear our attitude and our evaluation of the subject. It's all part of the plan. God, God's working out his great plan. Now, I want you to go to John 20 for our last stop on our tour, which is only halfway through. And Lord willing, if we, uh, uh, he lets us, we'll do that. I'll finish this next week. But John chapter 20. 
it recounts for us uh, in this story about uh, uh, that Mary Magdalene sees the, the living Lord and then uh, uh, it tells us in verse 19 and following that uh, the, the story we just heard, but it says in verse 24, now Thomas called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. When I get to heaven, I want to look him up and I'm just going to ask, where were you? Where were you? I have no idea. I have no clue where he was, but he missed a blessing. And he also misses a blessing for several days. The other disciples, therefore, said to him, we have seen the Lord. And he said to them, unless I see the, in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of those nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Isn't it gracious that those prints are there? He said, unless I can verify it, I'm not, I will not believe. The, 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 the ten spent days in joy and anticipation. Thomas spent another ugly week of living in his sorrow. And I want to encourage you and I and everyone else that may hear, let's don't spend another week in disbelief, but let's just connect to the reality that we serve a risen Lord. Verse 26, and after eight days, so this is the next Sunday night, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Same thing as last Sunday night. Doors are shut, doesn't knock, doesn't enter, no grand entrance. Suddenly, there he is. First words, Peace to you. And of all, whoever was gathered, and it might well have been more than just the, the 11 disciples, probably a larger group. You remember in Acts uh, when they're gathered in the, in, in the, in, together, there's about 120 believers. So it could have been a, a larger group. The, these are just the, the, the leaders. And then he said to Thomas, <laughs> the, one he, the one he picks out. Remember, it would have been a week since Thomas had said, I'm not going to believe. Uh, just remember, Jesus hears everything we say, know, think, and ever hope to be. And he looks at Thomas and he says, reach your finger here. And look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus doesn't put him down. Jesus doesn't embarrass him. Jesus pulls him in and says, just believe. Isn't that amazing, the, the grace of our Lord? And the Lord wants to do the same thing for us in our moments of unbelief. He doesn't want to insult us or put us down or belittle us. He says, no, just come and believe. Just come and believe. And this is in this skeptical background. Thomas said, I will not believe. I've got, to have, I've got to have proof that I see. I'm not taking... Think about how the other the disciples must have felt. I don't care what you said. I don't care what you saw. I don't care what the women said. I don't want to care what the Eumaeus people said. I'm not going to believe until I can verify this. Does that not sound like people you and I know today that live in a very skeptical world? And there's reasons. Frankly, there's reasons to be skeptical in this world. I got an email the other day from this guy in Nigeria that he wanted to send me $15 million because he knew I, being a trustworthy pastor, would use that $15 million to do great, wonderful things for the Lord's glory. I was a little skeptical of that. And you understand why that was, especially when they need your bank account number to be able to transfer this money to you, and you know how that works. So we accept but But don't let our skepticism... Follow, fall over and lap over into our relationship with the Lord. Take it at face value what he says, that, that, that these things are true. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which is sort of a, it's sort of a, 
a, a statement of uh, like a, a, re, a responsive reading, or it's probably like a, a little statement that they would use in worship probably. But Paul writes, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the, in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed in, on in the world, and received up in glory. That is the sum total of what God calls us to believe. So maybe we need to stop with the, the can'ts and the won'ts and the nevers in our speech and life. How many times do we make excuses? I can't. It won't. Never. Because we just have some difficulty believing that God really is there and really he does care. And he wants to be for us. You see, our attitude in all the different emotions in life, in a skeptical world, in a sorrowful world, when the surprises happen, when all these things take place, all from different angles, all from different emotional settings, it's always the opportunity for us in our attitude to be people of faith. Now, probably in this week that's about to unfold in front of us, the rest of this week, I should say, There's going to be some opportunities for us. It might just be in the privacy of your own heart to say, I'm going to to do away with the the can'ts and the won'ts and the nevers. I'm going to just believe in the Lord. That, That I'm going to be a person that even in my sorrow find a way to rejoice. Even when something happens I don't expect, I'm going to say it's part of God's plan. That we would be people of faith. Our attitude and our reactions are powerful parts of the living witness that God has called you and I to be.